Hello and welcome to the October edition of the Cinetopia radio show and podcast. I'm Amanda Rogers, founder of Cinetopia, and I am here with uh, Jim Ross. Jim, how are you doing? Not bad, as ever, as well as you can do with a eight-month-old, two weeks, three times a night, but in general, pretty good. In general, pretty good. Apart from apart from the obvious things around the, the film scene in Edinburgh, which, you know, we'll get to talking about during the show, but yeah. Yes, the utter chaos that's going on currently in Edinburgh cultural scene. Um, Clara is also with us again. Clara, how are you doing? I am good. I'm I'm still trucking, despite the the malaise <laughs> caused by various <laughs> factors, both political and oh yeah, I suppose the film house went down for political reasons. One could argue. So yeah, but good regardless. Good despite it. Yes, um, and it is quite a nice sunny day, and the the weather has changed over here in Edinburgh. It's it's gotten cold, so it's a, like winter is upon us, um, but nice and sunny as well. Um, so we are going to talk films uh, today. We're also we're also obviously going to unpack as much as possible uh, what's currently going on in um, Edinburgh in terms of the closure of the CMI and Film House. But after that, we are going to review two films, um, Blonde, which is currently on Netflix, directed by Andrew Dominic, and The Triangle of Sadness, uh, directed by Robert Usland. It, I believe, won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year. Um, and that's our show. And also, as well, we're going to be sort of highlighting um, different uh, film festivals that are... There's quite a lot of film festivals going on in the city, and um, quite a lot of them were affected by the loss of the film house. And um, we'll be also highlighting um, their programs and making sure to, to, to amplify that so that you can go and uh, support them as well. So that is our show for October. Let's get started. So if you didn't hear the news, um, a, a lot of people I'm sure have um, on um, the 6th of October, I believe, uh, this film house and basically the organization that um, ran the film house as well as the Edinburgh International Film Festival and the Belmont Film House in Aberdeen uh, went into administration and 102 staff uh, members completely lost their jobs at that immediate moment, the film house shut. Um, and it really caused a real series of moments of crisis for Edinburgh, I think, the Edinburgh cultural scene, but also very certainly the Scottish screen sector. I mean, as we all just last last on the the last podcast and, um, you know, we're talking about the new uh, the new Edinburgh International Film Festival's move to August and, and, and how that, you know, ha had affected Edinburgh. It's, it's, it's obviously 75 years old. The film festival, the film house itself is 40 years old. Um, it's it's really shocking, I think, to everyone. I think everyone in in and around Edinburgh, but also around the UK and around the world is are, you know, is mourning this at, in some capacity if they, you know, you know, had had experiences, positive experiences with those organizations. What do you guys um feel and how are you feeling right now about the the whole the whole situation? Um Pretty grim and depressed, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Um, I mean, I think the, the thing that struck me in the immediate aftermath of it, first of all, I'm surprised that it happened that quickly, right? I mean, I think, mm. you know, the way um, 
with the way cinemas in particular, you know, we'll come to the film festival and the and CMI Center for the Moving Image in a little bit. But if we just take the film house and probably the Belmont on on their own for the minute, I don't think anybody was under the impression that cinemas were in a good state um, over the past couple of years. You know, it's been a very challenging time for cinemas. You've got uh, even multiplexes like Cine World Final for for bankruptcy. I think it's very tough out there. I think what I think what was surprising about the whole thing is how it went from existing to not existing effectively i mean it really just happened to to externalize anyway overnight um you know i mean when i read the news like you know cinema listings were still up i mean i'd been looking at listings for some of the london film festival partner screens the day before and uh, i'd been planning to go to stuff uh this coming weekend so it, it was a bit shocking in that regard um beyond that um I think the thing that really struck me about it was really kind of the passivity it was greeted with at first. Not 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 from necessarily uh, folk in the Edinburgh cultural scene. Quite the opposite. I mean, everybody was kind of like very shocked and tried to rally around about kind of like you know what could we do? And I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that shortly. But I mean, outside that, um, you know the. Uh, you know Angus Robertson, the you know who has the culture brief for the Scottish government. It was a very sort of like standard response that he put out on Twitter. Even he he even tweeted yesterday, if you can believe this. He was uh, visiting Iceland, something to do with the Icelandic uh, cinema sector. And he said Scotland and Iceland both have a booming screen sector. And I was like, are you serious? Are you serious? Like you know, I mean, like get a grip. I mean, you know, I, I, and I appreciate that he wants to be positive, and he's probably talking about you know production <laughs> of films as much as anything else. But like you know, come on, it's completely tone deaf. It's, you know, pull your finger out of your arse, Angus. But um, you know, so that, and then uh, Ben Roberts, the head of the BFI, sort of like expressed sadness, and I hope some form of cultural. So you know, it's just like it didn't feel like it. It, it seemed to be just. It accepted it had happened right and i think and there wasn't really a lot of um i didn't really feel like outside of edinburgh and people could, who kind of like it meant something to and used it there was a lot of anger about this or there was really a lot of understanding about what the knock-on effects are and you know amanda you're going to go on to talk later about some of the film festivals that are coming up in the the city that have been affected by the closure of the film house and you know i read a, a thread on social media from the co-founder of Scotland Loves Animation, and I'm sure he's not the only one who's been in this position. He's had to kind of, you know, foot the bill for additional venues himself because, of course, all the money's tied up in the administration process of the film house. So when there's all this talk about, you know, the viability of this and the viability of that and, you know, whether it's a good use of money, I I, I really don't think there's been a lot of consideration about the the knock-on effects of this. Um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily a simple thing, and I'm sure... We'll talk about it, but I think that that was kind of what disappointed me about it at first. It was kind of the how quickly it happened, because uh, I think you know there's a lot of folk who would have tried to help rally something around this if it had been a bit more transparent and open about what was going on. And from the UK cinema scene at large, especially given that London Film Festival is going on at the moment, it doesn't look particularly great in my view. Yeah. Um, a lot of passivity about how it's been greeted. You know, it, mm. it, it it's seen as kind of like some sort of regional provincial thing. And I think that's, I think that's pretty insulting to the hundred people who lost their jobs, frankly. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who we 
no uh, we have friends who worked for cmi or worked with them and you know there's a lot of talented people fall in that 102 jobs that were lost so you know beyond anything else about you know the cultural sector in scotland and edinburgh there's also the fact there's a lot of talented people who've lost their jobs you know um so no i think it's a bit grim i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sugarcoat it i'm feeling a bit depressed about the whole thing yeah, it's a bit of a grim portent about the way that the cultural sector is going to be coping in the next couple of <laughs> decades, even. Who knows how long this is all going to last and go on. I just, I, I, I don't want to go, us to go back to the 70s, 80s, <laughs> where we're kind of, you know, scraping and scrabbling to try and establish a, a meaty cultural sector in Scotland. It's just taken us back to square one. It's just, it is very grim. And the thought that people are going to have to scramble at the grassroots level to try and uh, to try and win things back and try and keep things alive here is just very very depressing more work to be put in yeah I, I think the situation to me and you know is it's something that I've read a lot about or you know but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that nobody knew about and I think that's the shock so obviously like you said Jim if you know there had been a, a save you know save the film house campaign mm. while it was still you know not not shut people would have rallied probably behind it. There was one during COVID. Um, so there was one during, you know, that there was a crowdfunder that, you know, went out and people people rallied behind it as well. Well, I mean, um, that, exactly, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. I donated to that, I remember that crowdfunding effort yeah. for the, the film house. Yeah, and there's quite a lot of members, you know, of, of that organization that now kind of literally like those, that information is now lost. It's literally, or mm. it's it's being held within a, an administration. So there's a lot of stuff kind of locked into this administration. That's that's absolutely, yeah, it's terrible. It's not something that literally the, the Scotland government or Creative Scotland don't actually have any control over at the mm. moment. So it's, it's, I think there's a lot of people who feel, you know, like pessimistic. And I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll do, do will, will note that I had, you know, some participation in um, the starting of the petition for saving the film house and the Edinburgh International Film Festival. And I highly recommend that anyone who's listening uh, go on to change.org and, and, and sign that petition. What it is really is just a, a measure of support saying we don't want to lose a cultural space like this. And we also want to lend our support to the staff members who lost their jobs, which completely unfairly and, and also in the way that they didn't actually have any notice. So they were told mm -hmm. that there was a meeting and then that day they, no. you know, that, that happened. So it's, it's disgusting how that happened. And I don't think anyone really is, is happy with the way that the CMI managed the money. And obviously like as more and more information goes out or how they managed um, this situation with the loss of these jobs. Uh, but it's more of an idea of getting getting a collective support to support the you know the importance of these institutions, these or these separate organizations as as what they are um, and what they mean to Edinburgh and what they mean to Scotland and what they mean to the world. Um, so highly hope that you will share that and sign it. Um, and I don't know if that what that will lead to, but it has been leading to a, a first public meeting that happened on Friday. Um, and I think there'll be more meetings just discuss where, you know, where, where this can go. And the good news is that, you know, this, um, you know, people from the Edinburgh Council were, you know, at the meeting, people from Creative Scotland uh, were at the meeting. And there was a, you know, a keen interest to see what people want. Um, but there's a lot of things that potentially uh, people 
you know, we, people can't have, you know, uh, get like at the current such, you know, at the current moment, I think it, some of it comes down to that building, um, you know, which, which is one of those questions, whether or not, and I, and I, I guess I will pose this bo both out to you. I, I per, you know, I, you know, I'm, there's always things that are great and bad about, you know, certain buildings or certain cinemas or, you know, certain ways things were run or whatnot. And I won't go forward and say any things that I, disliked but you know that building was an interesting one and I think that's kind of one of the ones that the, the problem is they were going to build a bigger building you know this was the whole this discussion that they were going to build this you know seven story you know mm -hmm. tower um which I didn't particularly like myself um but you know it, is it the loss of the building you know or is it the loss of the, the film house like as an institution like what like you know how can you separate those two and I think that was a question that was being brought up in this public meeting that was really interesting um and you know I I think you might have to at this stage but like but I think there's a lot of people who will get nostalgic for that building too and there was reason mm. to enjoy it you know uh, I so I I'm probably maybe I'm slightly different to to Mosa in here I remember when that that um, announcement for the new film house venue in Festival Square was announced, and because I had a little bit of scepticism about how much it would cost, and you know the use of the space and all the rest. So I, I think broadly speaking, it was probably a good, he says, tentatively plan um, because I don't think I don't think you could task a um, cinema or a cultural organisation so with the the upkeep of that building um yeah. you know which which is a lot um i think it's also probably contributed to the current situation there's a lot of questions to be asked about cmi leadership and how they spent money but the fact of the matter is we've seen energy bills going through the roof recently that will have especially been the case in that building it will have been very hard and difficult to power and heat and the price caps didn't apply to businesses so you know i think that that will have been a massive problem for them to, to me it is the organization and the programming and uh, cultural development that went with it. That's why I lament the loss of. Now, I like I, I quite like the film house building, but it was always a bit of an. I, I mean, if we take a step back and remove our nostalgia for it, it, it was always a bit of an odd duck of a space. I mm. mean, like you, you know, I, it, it wasn't it wasn't particularly optimal. It kind of worked. It had character. I liked it, but. To me, what what we've lost is, you know, and you could split hairs about kind of like what was programmed at the film house, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think you could do that with just about any any cinema that is independent and what they choose to choose to show, right? But I genuinely don't think there was a lot of programming that the film house put on that was being properly replicated elsewhere in the city no. right no, um absolutely. you know like the multiplexes were generally not doing it you'd get the occasional odd little art house film that would be played on a tiny screen at cine world but generally you know odeon none to be seen view none to be seen you know unless it was, unless it was, unless ironically it was the film festival right but we'll come to that in a minute um the the cameo is it's a cinema i like um and it still shows kind of you know slightly off the beaten track films but ultimately it is a more commercial outlook it's part of you know city world parent company and city world is in trouble as well so christ knows what's going to happen there uh the dominion is very commercially focused the everyman is you know it has some interesting screens from time to time but it's a different type of cinema right it's it's more about your 
you know luxury experience type stuff, which mm. has its place, but you know it, it, you can't you can't you know you can't uh, sustain a cultural sector in a city on that sort of thing alone. You know, like for instance, like one one film that we spoke about on the show, we didn't do a full review, was Il Buco, right? Small Italian film. I went to see that a baby and carer screening at the film house. There is nowhere else in the city that that would mm. be happening. It just would not be happening. There there are films that I have seen at the film house where I would not have seen them anywhere else in the city. Like basically, I would have had to travel to Glasgow and Glasgow Film Theatre, and I really hope Glasgow Film Theatre is not in a similar position Jesus, to, to CMI, right? But I would have had to travel to Glasgow to do that. Um, you know, so there's that, and then there's a lot of things went on under that roof. Um, you know, youth programmers, uh, critic mentoring workshops, uh, you know, we've we've already mentioned it would be the venue for lots of smaller film festivals outside of Edinburgh International Film Festival. That's gone, right? And I realise that, you know, they can relocate to other locations. Like, you know, many of these festivals have. They've had to do that, right? But it, it it's competing for more space at those venues, right? It's it, You always felt that the film house had this as part of its kind of mission, right? Part of his mission was to put on screenings for the Edinburgh Spanish Film Festival, for Scotland Loves Animation, Edinburgh Short Film Festival, um, you know, like all of the, you know, the, the, you know, the Taiwan Festival that we're going to speak about, the, it, like at one point they had the Edinburgh Greek Film Festival, they've had Ibero, mm. like all these things. Now they are competing for space elsewhere. And if it needs to go to a different, a different building, I'm fine with that, to be honest. I would still like it to retain a spot in the like properly in the the center of the the city. I think, um, and I I define that pretty broadly. I mean, like I live in the Leith area. I'd be happy with something in the Leith area. I think it'd probably be quite good there. But the the point is, I think it needs to be it needs to be in the center of the the city and to get the most out of it. But it is it is the organization kind of its mission and outlook that i think the city will miss i don't think it will i, I don't think it'll miss the building i have to be honest um i like the building i have a lot of fondness for it but if you're asking me to either revive the film house in a new location or at great extra cost to revive the film house in the same location and burden it with the same maintenance and costs yeah. that it had before i'm not going to take that deal i i think it's more important that we get the the outlook of it as an organization back. Right. Clara, how do you feel? I, feel? I feel guilty, actually. Well, initially, I felt a sense of kind of guilt and regret that I hadn't uh, gone along more and kind of had been a bit more of a participant in the scene and bought more tickets. And But then, uh, obviously, I just had to keep reminding myself, like, well, I mean, that's I, I'm just one of thousands of people who's been impacted by the cost of living crisis and by inflation and wages so like I try not to beat myself up about it but it is I do feel a sense of guilt and I, uh, yeah I missed the time when I was just just gruntled about the architecture and the new plans for it to <laughs> to be rebuilt I missed that time <laughs> um yeah you don't really know what you have until it's gone and that is definitely the case of the film house for me I've been going there since I was 14 and uh, their their dvd rack was a great source of joy to me just mm -hmm. cherry picking whatever seemed appealing to me on the day and for yeah, it's just such a shame. And um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about the cameo as well now. So I, I immediately went and brought a membership to the cameo, <laughs> even though it doesn't deliver the same kind of things as the film house. But um, so the last couple of screenings I've gone to, the cameo that I really loved, 
they were not well attended and that really disturbed me and I'm just trying now to goad my friends into coming along to more screenings so um I went to Ganjin Hess for example the other night one of the the I think the Cannes um the Cannes board described it as one of the most 10 influential films of the 70s which is like a really insane kind of accolade when you think about it um and there was about eight people there including me and my friend and it's just it's it's just worrying I kind of I, I, I just I, I want to get involved somehow to try and beef up attendance and get things going but I just don't really know we need to we need to band together we need to be communicating more I think get more I, information something, something that's worth mentioning I, I'd be interested to see what you two think of this right I, so I read so I'm from Dundee and I was reading uh an article in the Courier um which is the local local paper there about this and it was doing it was talking about it in the context of Dundee contemporary arts right mm. which is you know it's a, it's a multi you know it's a multi sort of media space right it has an art gallery and it does you know it's got a buy like it, it's a much more kind of broad cultural space than just cinema but it has a two-screen cinema and I wrote about it for um uh, a site that I freelance for a few times that were looking for articles about local cinemas, and I really, I really debated about whether to write about the film house or write about the the DCA. And I wrote about the DCA. This article was talking about it in the context of the DCA, and it, it actually really annoyed me. And I think it speaks to something where I don't think you should feel guilty, Clara, to be honest, because it mentioned something about uh, "use it or lose it" is a message that Edinburgh cinema goers failed to heed, and I am. Honestly, I, I've been banging on about this on social media a lot recently, and I will keep doing it. Whilst I appreciate things need to be financially sustainable, let's say, right? And it needs to be viable. We've heard that word viability a lot, mm. right? I want to know what the definition of this is and under what terms, because I am begging people. I am absolutely begging people to stop with this brutally capitalist brutally free marketeer approach to cultural development right mm. more went on under that roof than simple film screenings right the expertise in that building is lost right at least temporarily um and there are things that happen there and there are things that we need to consider about how we bring culture to audiences which have a public good and deserve some public funding. Now, in the case of the CMA, I, I realise it's not as simple as that because it, it, clearly they've received a lot of public money over the past you know, year, two years, and not made particularly great use of it at a leadership level, clearly. But putting that to one side, I, I'm really tiring of this, uh, well, you know, audiences have voted with their feet. I, can we not think a bit bigger than this? You know, can we not think a bit bigger than this? Um and I, I keep returning to that argument that I've seen the, the film director James Gray make, which is if you want a healthy cinema sector, if you want people to go to the cinema, you need to be showing things and you need to be showing things with variety and range and consider that there are things beyond blockbusters. Because if you only do that, you narrow the audience. And if you narrow the audience, that's when it dies right mm. it's not this idea that you know if something doesn't make money it's on it, it, it's basically cinema's always existed in this weird 
space where it's like part culture and part business right i think more so than other art forms more so than going to an art gallery even more so than even kind of music to be honest with you because you know you've even got the separation between live and recorded music there i think we need we need to as a nation we need to think bigger than this we need to think about what this is the loss of it is not just a loss of a city center cinema it is the loss of a cultural institution which brought things to audiences that other places did not it is the loss of a decades-running film festival which brought international cinema to Scotland. It is the loss of more than just a city centre cinema. And that message needs to get out there. There are too many people who are not plugged into scene. I don't blame them for it. This is my point. I don't think you can blame audience for this i'm sure there's lots of people you can point the fingers at but i i think as soon as we start saying oh well people didn't go if people want to want to keep it they should go it it misunderstands what the point of somewhere like this if we're talking about you know if we're talking about one of the two view cinemas in this in the city i might have a different opinion i don't have this feeling about cineworld for instance right <laughs> we're, we're 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 talking about something it's not which is doing well just either a, just, well, or else no, would exactly. the city no. get slushy the size like, of if, my abdomen? But the, so. the idea of Cineworld going, the idea of the Cineworld disappearing, I mean, I'd be annoyed. I mean, sure, like it's less choice in the city, but I, I, I wouldn't feel it was like a wound to Scotland's cultural yeah. sector in the same way. And I think we, that's the message that needs to get out there. This is not a loss of a three-screen cinema in the centre of Edinburgh. It is more than that. It is so much more than that. Yeah, I, I will second that in the fact that, like, as someone who runs film events, which, honestly, I did run, I, I ran a, a series at the Film Guild, which I, I will like to add, another. that's a, that's another group that has lost, a, there's yep. a major loss for them. So we're talking the longest continually um, mm -hmm. running film society in the world was housed within the film house and the sort of secret cinema they had, but they had this amazing program and they had been running it, you know, like they're solvent. And they did put a tweet, tweet at or like messaging out saying basically like we're solvent. We just don't have a home now. And we don't know, you know, and, and um, they're that, you know, they started the film festival. So that, you know, so they're, they're at a loss too, as you know, as well, which is really, really sad. And I, I do agree with you, Jim, on that, but I also, I, I agree at that these things cost money. So when you're mm -hmm. providing, um, when you're one of the only spaces that is providing audio descriptions and closed captions and this, and, and baby and care, you know, like um, events and, and all of this stuff that they're bringing to the community in terms of cinema and the type of programming, as you're mm -hmm. saying, like these independent cinemas do not have a space. And I can tell you that right now, you can you can tell me that, you know, they can go find a place in Dominion or Summer Hall, but like Summer Hall seats 80, pe 80 people. We've been banging on about this for like to five since the five years that I've been here is that there's actually not that much space for places no. like independent cinema so ind independent exhibitors and that was the only space and then would they run out of space because you know because there wasn't because there there's it's a small space like it literally was a small space the other thing I would say is that it's another it's a it's a it is a space that I did go to a lot to be perfectly honest um, I spent a lot of money in the cafe. I had lots of meetings yeah. in the film house. That was my de facto kind of, you know, film hub, if you will, that I've dreamed, you know, that existed because mm -hmm. this is it was just there. And that's where I would see people from the film community. And it was such an important part for that, for, for this community to kind of rally behind, if not just during the film festival, during, you know, during a regular Saturday. Um, and that space is lost too. And it's a real, like, mm -hmm. it's really hard to find spaces where, 
you know, you feel comfortable like just sitting it's a but you know like and and being in and it's so that that is essence of a public space is something mm. that really even if it is a business or a charity it has to be it has to be preserved and it has to be subsidized and there's there's you know like that cost per head of you know the five people who maybe show up on a monday it's not the people's fault that they they don't want to come on a monday afternoon like that's you know like or they don't have the or they don't have the money to spend five pounds on a pint of or whatever. We need to have those spaces available, and we need to sub we need to subsidize them, and we need to put cult, you know cultural funding and money into it. Whether or not they use that money, I mean, I know they were the most, and I think the the paper was quite controversial in writing the way that they did because it's you know that I I do think that the Creative Scotland would have helped them if you know if it had been a solvent organization and the problem is all that stuff kind of there was no formal request for like saving that no. you know no. at, at the end um but it certainly was it's certainly something that people you know what like should and 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 subsidize and i think that's something that we're hopefully everyone's rallying behind for the for going forward another another thing about it i just like just to take it back to basics a little bit is it's probably the only cinema I can, in my opinion, anyway. It's the only cinema in the city where, like, the primary objective was film. Really, I mean, like, I so like the new cinema in the city is the Everyman, and it's a nice cinema. I like it. I've been to it a few times now. Um, but there's three screens I've been to that have had subtitles in some form, right? Either because it was um, audio description or it was, you know, captions for place names or it just had some, it wasn't a foreign language film, it just had some dialogue in the foreign language. On every single one of those screenings, those captions were cut off at the bottom of the screen, right? And it was only about 10, 15 minutes into the film when somebody would sort it. Now, I, I, I realise I'm going to sound like such a nitpicky wee arsehole here, but that's not good enough, right? And that's not the sort of thing that happened at... The film house and you, you know i'm not going to sit here and say that they always projected everything perfectly i'm sure they didn't i'm sure somebody could come back with counter example but the idea is there was a certain amount of care for what they were screening there was a certain amount of care for what they were showing people other places it doesn't have it i the, the number of times i've gone to the everyman the cinewilder view and the aspect ratio is wrong or they're not bother to mask it or captions are off the bottom or you know it's like got some weird sort of like kerning mm -hmm. you know what's the term for like how you get a projector the right way but you know it looks off or something because it's not been calibrated properly i you know it's like like it or not a lot of these places it's not their primary objective. Their primary objective is to make money. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go too mar like too communist about this. There's nothing wrong with that, but there <laughs> is a space for, there is a space for, and there is a need for somewhere where it they care about what they're showing and how they show it, and I think that that's 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 what we've lost here. Um, you know, which is not to say that people in these other, um, these other places don't care, but you know the evidence oh, yeah. to the evidence the evidence on the basis of a bunch of screens i've gone to is it's not to the same level um and th that's what i keep coming back to it's i i get really annoyed when it's kind of like oh let's want to oh well you know never mind let's all move on it's like no no let's not all move on this is ridiculous and this and it, it's a bit terrifying in the sense that if you think about it is it 
you know, proving viability. We're talking about somewhere that's been the centre of the city doing this for 40 years. Of course it's viable. The question is under what conditions is it viable? And the film festival for 75 years, right? If it can happen here, it can happen anywhere else in the UK, probably that isn't London, right? You know, but like, you know, I'll put my, I'll put my kind of like, you know, my, my rants on that to one side. But the point is it can happen anywhere else in this country. If it can happen here, it can happen anywhere else. And I think people need to, people need to wake up to what these places provide because not a lot of places are doing that now. And if you lose them, it becomes very hard to get them back. Very hard. Just, yeah, it just feels like we're taking yet another step into sort of making Edinburgh really a more culturally homogenous and uh, place to live. And I don't want to say cultural desert, but it does feel like that sometimes if you've been living in Edinburgh for, for long enough, it does feel like that. You're just losing so many, like, for example, just, and this goes across the cultural board, gig spaces and their cinemas and then, yeah, like venues and any kind of grassroots uh, places where people can do things like put it up an exhibition, have a gig, have have a, a meeting or have a screening. Like all these things are just being pushed out because they are now being they're, they're being considered not viable financially. They are subject to the market forces and it's just it's grim. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it certainly is. And especially when you your brand of your and your city is actually like a cultural mm. a cultural city in the world. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's it's really it's it's surprising as someone who is an expat who has moved here and, you know, uh, to know how difficult it is actually to run events because there's no space because it's too expensive or they don't make it, you know, accessible to people who actually work and live. Yeah, come 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 to Edinburgh, the world's festival city. What's that? An independent cinema? No, we don't have that anymore. But you can go see Lyle Lyle Crocodile at Ocean Terminal. I mean, you know, like. But yeah, so if you are as impassioned as we are, um, I do again would like to note to sign the petition, get involved in however you can, um, show your support. I do think that there is going to be movement and positive movement. I don't, you know, I I feel confident in that, and I'm a really optimistic person. I realize. But I do feel like this that there can be movement to, to you know to to make the, to to keep things like the film house alive in in some capacity, whether it's on you know a different kind of organization or however it's you know like what it will be. And if you feel the same, um, definitely share support or get involved. Please do um, share it with other people. Um, and also, really, so as we as we mentioned, please support um, your local cinema. Uh, but also please support the organizations like uh, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, the Taiwan Film Festival, uh, Scotland Loves Anime, French Film <laughs> Festival. And we'll be talking about those uh, during um, just little giving little heads up about what the, what activities happening over the next month um, in different venues other than um, the now with the now lost film house for now, for now. Um, so yes, uh, do support as much as possible. So the first film festival that we're going to talk about um, that's happening currently is our friends at the Taiwan Film Festival Edinburgh, which is returning for its third edition from the 15th to the 20th of October. So you still have some time to get there. Um, and it's bringing the best of Taiwanese film to cinemas across the city. 
Particularly, uh, you can see the film program at Summer Hall and Everyman Edinburgh. Um, and the final closing is on the 20th, I believe. Um, it's a really great film festival. It's run one by some of our friends. This year, there's six, year, six features and five shorts, and um, they're all under this theme of unusuals. So um, it's gonna be, there's three strands of shorts. And also um, there's a couple docs, um, a couple of them I've seen before that are really good. One is called The Catch. And the other one is When the Dawn Comes, which uh, sheds the light of the story of uh, Chiche Wei, which is the first person in Taiwan to publicly come out as gay and who dedicated his life to raising awareness around AIDS. Um, and The Catch, as I mentioned, is a fascinating portrait of the camaraderie and hardship experienced by indigenous nomadic eel-catching fishermen as they set camp along Taiwan's Lingyang River. So um, this is really great festival. It's really wonderful that we can kind of spotlight Taiwanese film that isn't often shown elsewhere. So if you can um, take a look at their website and come along. The first film we're going to review is currently on Netflix. I think it premiered at uh, Venice Film Festival. It's Blonde. Uh, people have been talking about it. You might've heard about it. Uh, and Claire is gonna tell us about this film. So, uh, Blonde is a fictionalized biopic about the celluloid bombshell described by some of the most famous women in the world, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, it's based on the controversial, but very popular, very popular 2000 um, fictional bio biography, Blonde by George Carl Oates. Um, uh, yeah, directed by Andrew Dominic. It's garnered a lot of criticism, perhaps for obvious reasons. Um, in okay, so first off, I'd like to express my distaste at this movie and having watched this movie because I've now got the Instagram algorithms giving me loads of romanticized images of Marilyn Monroe on my feed, which is just really not what I'm after from that app. So thanks. <laughs> um, I so I think I mean it's just it's just low hanging fruit to me. Just someone had to make a Marilyn Monroe biopic from that sensationalist, fabricated fantasy pulp <laughs> that Carol Joyce Oates came up with. Which um, this this is a quote. So it's been described. The book has been described as a thinly veiled but highly fictionalized um, account of Marilyn Monroe's life, and that's kind of uh, that that's very light. I would say there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of fabrication about events in Marilyn Monroe's life that did not even happen, and it dwells on it dwells on the dark side. Um, if you're looking for a tasteful and like nuanced and honest biopic, this will seem like a really sort of tacky and tawdry film, and uh, I think it may also seem tacky and tawdry if you're aware that it isn't trying to be an honest <laughs> biopic as well, um, which is probably why I thought of it. Um, so yeah, we're bio biopics are meant to strive uh, for objective fact, but this film is just sort of. Uh, openly a slave to the subjective vision and narrative that uh, Marilyn Monroe's life was impossible, doomed, tragic, lived simultaneously in the spotlight and in the shadow of the trauma she endured in her childhood and then as a young woman being extremely famous. And I know it's meant to be a um, non-literal biopic and it's meant to be a very dreamlike and surreal film on trauma and insurmountable challenges of being a sexualized celluloid legend, but it just feels like really reductive trauma porn to me. Uh, which ironically is another just another limb on the monster of Marilyn Monroe's grotesque myth. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I you know I I think the film the only thing I can give the film is that it looks nice in some parts. Mm. You know, like it's it's it it's you know it's obviously they put a lot of money and time and 
energy into the filming and that it does look there's there's nice images it's it's in, it's incredibly not interesting either like for me like and i'm i would be interested kind of in the story a biopic yeah. about marilyn monroe so i didn't find it i found it a, like just terrible like from the very beginning to be honest and um and i, I you know i really don't i really dislike this film and then you think about something like Spencer which you know managed another very public figure which is you know was a tragic public figure you know um they handled that kind of biopic in a much better way so that's Pablo Lorraine I believe who did that mm -hmm. film um and mm -hmm. this is the absolute opposite um you know and I don't know how it how it got this far to be it's funny yeah it's funny you so, mentioned that it was pretty because I just one of my notes is making your scenes chiaroscuro black and white doesn't convince everyone that the film is a tawdry pile of insulting, sexy, stereotypical nonsense, but nice try. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think um so I'm gonna I'm going to I'm gonna mildly disagree with the pair of you, but not from the perspective that I think this is a good film. Um I'm not really I, I think I was I, I think it does a lot of things well. I don't think it necessarily amounts to a good film. And I, I'm pleased that you mentioned Spencer, Amanda, right? Mm. Because that, that that is a film which, when I was reflecting on Blonde, which I, fortunately I managed to watch in a cinema, actually. Um, but when I was reflecting on it, it was one that came up. And when I was talking to somebody about who hadn't seen Blonde, I was talking to them about the film, um, mentioned Spencer. And the, the thing that I find interesting about Spencer, right, and we said this on the show, like my reading of it was that it was only tangentially about Diana, right? I think it was far more about um, the overbearing nature of British society and the British state and what it demands from people in terms of civility and needing to fit in. And it used Diana and the royal family as kind of a, you know, a cipher for that. Um, I feel like Blonde kind of wants to do something similar, in that it's kind of about it it goes a long way to think about the toxicity of fame and being used um for you know entertainment and what that does to the self and the soul if it doesn't line up with your uh identity you know i mean like you know it's it's very they go to great lengths in this film to in my view, make the protagonist Norma Jean Baker. It's not Marilyn Monroe. Like Marilyn Monroe is the screen presence. Marilyn Monroe is the uh, the you know iconic sex symbol, right? That's Marilyn Monroe. But the film is about Norma Jean Baker, and it does that from the start when we kind of see this uh, extended sequence of her with her abusive mother and driving into these California wildfires, which looks incredible, by the mm. way. I mean, you, you know, there's a lot, that, that in terms of kind of the way the film looks, there's a lot to like about it. But unlike Spencer, right, I think this this bigger picture it's trying to draw around this individual, I, I, I'm not convinced either that it, it actually has the clarity that that film does about what it's actually trying to say. And I think it reaches too far at points, right? So one of the threads that's going through this whole thing is probably kind of like, um, you know, not, Norma is not seen, right? She's, she's used and she's not really, um, she's got reduced agency in key areas of her life. And there's a couple of sequences where I, I'm just going to come out and say them, right? Because it's been spoken about in the, in the press quite a bit. Um, there are sequences depicting abortions that she had 
um, or allegedly, I don't know which ones are confirmed and which ones aren't. And the way that those scenes are handled, I don't really see what the food... I, I can't attach a reasonable reading to how those scenes are handled, right? I see what it's going for, but I don't see what it is trying to illustrate <laughs> with the way it actually goes around. You know, I, I mean... <laughs> It's very hard to talk about this without without really getting into it. But I mean, essentially, there are two key aspects of this, right? One is an early abortion that she has. She's shown to be kind of a, a little bit, re, you know, regretful and rueful about it, and basically has a conversation inverted commas with a fetus in utero, right? And then there's, you know, even after this this has progressed, and then it's shot from a genitalia pov shall we say one cervix of them. and it's just <laughs> and i just i'm looking going like i don't it's certainly shocking it's certainly it, and certainly in particular i think the second one we're dealing with quite late on in the film is it's done in a very horrific manner and i think in that sense it made sense to make it horrific right it, and traumatic but it just it just dials certain things up to 11 and I'm not sure what it's looking to achieve by doing that. Further than that, this reading of the film about it being about toxicity of fame, people being used and not having agency and using this, using this woman to their own ends. I mean, you can make the accusation, the film ends up doing it itself. Yes, it's right? and I, and I, yeah. And that's something that what, that's something that I have known folk to level at Spencer. And I take that. But my reading of that film, I think it handles it in a much better way without losing sight of the fact that it is using a real person to depict this. I'm not sure Blonde pulls that off. Um, so technically, on a technical level, there's a lot to like about the film. I think it's edited very well. I think the music from Nick Cave is superb. I think it sets tone like really quite superbly. The film looks incredible. I think Anna de Armas's performance as Marilyn Monroe is also very good. But the way this is all brought together and what the film is trying to say, I it, it feels a little bit, it feels very scattershot. And when it does actually kind of like lock on to what I think it was trying to do, it just goes much too hard, I think. It, it, it's, it's overbearing in how it attempts to do it. And I think it ends up diluting any message it might have had as a result. So I'm slightly different to the pair of you. And I think there are things this film does well. But I don't think it. I, I don't think it harmonizes enough of them and bring them together well enough to actually make it a coherent, a coherent story with a coherent message. And I think, unfortunately, I don't know if I'd go that far myself. But Clara's point about it ending up being tawdry. Um, I mean, I'd probably say gratuitous, but you know, we're splitting hairs. I was gonna, point. yeah, I was gonna I, say gratuitous right? later on. Yeah. No, but the point is, I think that's that's the end result. And I think, given some of the the talent behind it. Like Andrew Dominic, I really like as a filmmaker, like um, Assassination of Jesse James and Killing Them Solid, both films that I really like. And De Armas, as I say, I think is great. Music's great. There's a lot to like about it, but it doesn't come together in a way that really makes it achieve much, in my view. I mean, as the film wore on, I was trying to sort of empathise with what um, he was going for. Um, and it does it's, it does seem like he's trying to take the, the Arthur Miller angle on Marilyn Monroe's uh, on Marilyn Monroe and Norma Jean's fame um, and the spe spectacle of celebrity and the corrosive nature mm. of celebrity culture and the consumers and the celebrities themselves um, so he is trying to take that angle but it don't it doesn't achieve it so um, 
Miller, for context, famously said uh, he didn't attend uh, Marilyn's funeral because he said it was a, like a disgusting spectacle. And he released a statement saying she was destroyed by many things. And some of those things are you. And some of those things are destroying you, destroying you now. And now as you stand there weeping and gawking, glad that it's not you going into the earth, glad that it's this lovely girl who you <coughs> last killed. So he is, I mean, he's, so I think that's the perspective that the director is going for. He's trying to make it so disgusting and so distasteful and so tawdry as to, to highlight that if, if you know, if, if it was any softer, any more gentle, any more sort of like, if it was a cloying film about how brilliant Marilyn was and how, then it might risk being falling into that category of just sort of still idolizing her. I think maybe you try that. That's my only kind of like I'm trying to understand and justify how gratuitous it really was. Um, but yeah, just like scaring the audience and thinking like this is not this is not glamorous. This is not something to idealize. This is not beautiful. But um, yeah, I have I have so much more to say about this. So buckle up. <laughs> so I but just just from the beginning, from the very beginning, it's just this morbid, tragic trauma porn. It's just like even from the beginning, it's just this ghoulish dirge singing at the beginning from the moment that the titles begin. And it just traces the same well-hewn trajectory, but with a touch more surrealism just to, to try and make it sort of new and cool which I which I disliked but um earlier you were saying why why they're gratuitous uh abortion scenes and why all the, why <laughs> I will now go to my uh, section of my notes entitled let's talk about daddy issues <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, just, that's, that's a that's a oh, pretty strong strong thread run oh god yeah. he beats you around the head with the daddy issues and the Freud the pseudo Freudian take on her life I mean, it's not to say that this doesn't come from a pool of fact. I mean, Marilyn Monroe was, uh, people close to her, her therapists, people who worked with her said that she did have a little bit of an obsession, especially later in her life as things didn't quite, didn't go to plan and she she had more trauma heaped on her and through her abortions and her failed marriages, that she was obsessed with her father as a figure, even to the point of, you know, casting him as a kind of, um, is sort of having an, a diapole complex with her father as well but this is once again this is all just inviting us into this woman's life to speculate about her mental health but for what gain just to contribute <laughs> again and again to these things but just honestly the daddy references just make you just it's just so tiring because once you watch the whole like almost like three hours of it it's just so it the film I mean begins with it just with um there's a song in the background. The lyrics are, every baby needs a daddy to keep her worry free. Where is one for me? If he's not got a million and a half, a half will do. Could my daddy be you? As she's crying as a child. And then suddenly the sequence changes. She's going to an orphanage. Sequence changes. She's a, she's a young woman and she's, and she's trying to get her into her modeling career. Although this song is playing in the background. And which if, if you're a woman and you're watching this and didn't already know it, just screams male director, male director. Because it's just like the belief of every kind of shithead misogynist closet or proud alike that this the, this the cause of women's harlotry or mental illness can be directly attributed to a daddy issue which isn't even you know just loosely just a daddy issue it's so also worth pointing out like the, the, the point you're making here like you've mentioned kind of like stuff that's in the background this is not a background thing i mean it's oh. front and center i mean like th th there are yeah. huge sequences where both husbands are repeatedly called daddy mm -hmm. um you know and there's a thread going through it about um you know, with letters, supposedly anyway, um, letters from her father who she's she's never met, and it's okay. It's another one of these things where I'm talking about like it dials up to eleven and goes for it. Like I, I'm I'm perfectly willing to believe 
that, you know, as you said, based upon kind of accounts of people who knew her, I'm perfectly willing to believe that this had an effect on mm. Marilyn Monroe slash Norma Jean Baker. I'm perfectly willing to believe that. Am I willing to watch two and a half hours of yeah. me being beat <laughs> over the head with it, with her right. calling her lover's daddy and musical background and, you know, you know, obsessing over letters from an absent father? I mean, like, pick pick one of these things. Pick one of them and then still tone it down a bit. And I think you could make the same psychological point. But it's it just gets dialed up so much that it's at the point where it's caricature. And as I say, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't help the film with it what its message supposedly is. Yeah. And I think when you mix that in with kind of the you know, the the impact of celebrity on the soul or something. It just—it's like I say—it just ends up too scattershot. It doesn't—it mm. doesn't know what it doesn't know what it wants to say. But the things that it wants to say, it wants to say them really loudly and really angrily and aggressively. And I don't—it—it it, it needs a bit of—it needs a bit more. Um, I don't even want to say sensitivity, right? Because I think the brutality of it is actually one of its one of its strengths. But mm. it's just the way it applies that brutality and what it chooses to depict with it i don't think it furthers the message of the film i don't think it i don't think it gives it a reading which is um goes beyond isn't this dreadful um yeah. and all the stuff that you've just said kind of speaks to that in my mind it just it just really just paints her as a really yeah as you said just like a, a caricature of some like doddering embarrassing innocent who's unable to conceal her sensitivity and her naivety which by many accounts all accounts is not who she actually was as a complete human character and no that's not what they're going for but it's just uh yeah so the the contrived elements of her life and the fabricated elements of her life just sort of leave you just your your imagination just sort of reels off and peels off and you're just wondering like is this okay is this really <laughs> or are we, are we making this up is this real is this true i maybe that appeals to some people but doesn't really appeal to me. I mean, there's this line it says where, where uh, Marilyn says, oh, the things they make up about you, it's awful, which maybe is meant to be some meta comment on myth in Hollywood and fame, but it just seemed really cheeky given that he was just making up. Well, this is the thing. I mean, with the thing is based upon, it, it was based upon is essentially, fiction. as far as I'm aware, like, it, it's fiction. I mean, it, it's, yeah. I, you know, and like, I don't think, I think what's interesting about it is I don't think, the, the one thing that you said in the intro, right, which I which I will question is I don't I don't think biopics should strive strive for objective truth, right? I think I think that's why I like Spencer as much as I did, right? Because it it, it didn't, right? And it, it tries to see something else with this figure, whilst also you know like painting something of a portrait of an individual. So I think the approach that Blonde is taking, if I take the Joyce Carol like novel out of it for a moment, this idea of taking a kind of like you know. Um, speculative fictional situation and story and trying to say something both bigger and more specific about the person with it I think that's a good approach to take right I don't particularly want to watch like a dramatization of um, somebody's like because that's how you end up with shit like the Iron Lady right but mm. um, but here it's it's worth I don't really know I, I don't think it knows what it wants to say I don't think it has the clarity of technique and target to make it meaningful Precisely. it's certainly effective in that it is grotesque and it will shock you and it you know it's horror movie credentials are actually probably pretty good but it's just more what what is it trying to say with this and i don't think it knows i don't think it really 
knows and has clarity around that and that that to me is the problem with it because then it goes off in these directions like like the extremely gratuitous depictions of um abortions and you know uh jfk getting fellated and like whatever the hell else they want to throw at the screen to you know make it look make it look shocking and in a lot of the scenes in particular that i'm talking about here the point the film was trying to make it was brutal it was sad it was you know it was depressing in the way that the film wanted to be but it tries to go further to make that message more powerful and it doesn't i think it dilutes it i mean it's also kind of yeah it's it's also naff in places as well which i didn't kind of i find myself kind of laughing at points just being like are you kidding like i mean there, there's one scene that comes to mind where she's um she's expressed her feelings of inadequacy to her um intellectual husband arthur miller and is convinced uh, convinced that she doesn't fit in and then she goes traipsing across the beach with her little tray of crudite and then trips over in slow-mo and then it just gets like recalled back and it's like it's, it's held up as the most the, the biggest embarrassment that she suffered at the hands of his intellectual friends and it's just you just it's just funny at that point but like not yeah laughable I should say not funny but yeah um, I don't I don't need all biopics to be to adhere to some kind of yeah to be bland and I, I'm all for artistic taking artistic liberties and but it needs to be in service of but, something. exactly but this is not in service of anything other than just well it's just an unmitigated slew of scenes which paint her as an utterly damaged and abused woman stumbling from predator to predator getting by on nothing but her sex appeal from the off always doe-eyed and really just frightened of everything she encounters which is just playing into the stereotype that the whole film is trying to negate allegedly yeah. i mean so that the marilyn herself is verbalizing is trying to get away from throughout the whole thing so i mean if if the whole if it was an exercise in irony hypocrisy then great success but like i just honestly it was it was a bit much a bit much well if if, if you, uh, if you didn't <laughs> feel that we thought this was tawdry gratuitous enough um but, you know you're you're more than welcome to check it out uh it's on netflix and the the film is blonde and uh but you know we have our opinions and so um yes on to the next I don't think um, a bit much is going to make the poster coat, to be honest. <laughs> I do have to, I do have a few positive things to say if you'd like me to. Oh, say you them do. Oh, okay. Do you, want, do you want, shall I say them? Oh, yeah, say the positive. Yeah. <laughs> I will say about um, Anna de Armas' performance that it was at times uncannily similar to Marilyn Monroe. Um, so yeah, I agree with you there, Jim. But inevitably, other times she's not very convincing. But I did enjoy watching the uncanny valley kind of area that we entered into with that and the surreal feeling of watching the RMS performance distilled through the the still of, of Marilyn Monroe's myth molded and stretched over the 60 odd years that we've been consuming it as a public, a celebrity consuming public. Um, I also did think there was a couple of scenes that did really bring home how utterly vile it must have been to be a, a sex icon trying to maneuver it in those industry circles at the time, um, subject to men's whims. It was, I mean, fair. <laughs> it was a nightmare. And I did think that particularly that the seven year itch dress upskirting sequence was quite haunting yeah. and did speak to me about the predatory male gaze and being women in the public eye. So there there were, and there was a lot of, there was good use of, of CGI techniques there. So there, there, were, there are some redeeming elements, but overall, yeah, scattershot and a bit, yeah. Okay, we've redeemed it a bit now, so, <laughs> but no. Um, check it out if you'd like. Uh, it's called Blonde and it's on Netflix.
Okay, so the next film festival we're going to highlight that's going on in Edinburgh at the at this time is the French Film Festival, which is having its 30th anniversary edition this year, uh, running from the 2nd of November to the 15th of December. It runs across um, 30 cinemas across the UK. Um, but in Edinburgh, it's going to be at the Dominion, at the French Institute, and at Summer Hall. And um, I believe the first screening in um, yeah, in, uh, in Edinburgh will be the 11th of November, which will be Magre uh, with the director Patrice Lacant present. Um, and from there, um, just some really amazing French films you would not get otherwise. Um, they're also doing a whole strand on the pioneer um, filmmaker, female filmmaker, Alice Guy Blanchet, uh, which there was, I believe, a documentary that was done around her as well. And they'll be having a film um, by Charlotte Gansbourg, one of my faves, um, turning the camera on her mother, Jane Birkin, Jane by Charlotte. I'm not sure when that's happening or if that's, I believe that's also on Curzon, but it's definitely worth checking out their film, their their website, discover what's going on with the French Film Festival. It's an incredibly, has incredibly rich legacy. It has tons of films, highly recommend it. And uh, you should check it out. All right, so the next film we're going to review is a uh, triangle of sadness. Um, and it's, uh, it, yeah, it's, uh, coming out on, I think the 28th of October. Is that, is that correct? And hopefully at a cinema near you, um, it would have probably been at the film house. Uh, but anyway, uh, Jim, tell us a little bit about this film. Yeah. So, um, this is the new film and first English language film from Ruben Uslant, which I think I'm pronouncing correctly, a Swedish filmmaker who, Won the Palme d'Or for this at the uh, most recent um, Cannes Film Festival and his previous feature, The Square, did the same thing. I think a lot of people might know him from Force Majeure, which is a film where, um, it, well, it got remade by Hollywood recently, actually, but it's when there's a controlled avalanche and a father runs away and abandons his family. So he's known for his kind of like, you know, comical, satirical type approach to uh to issues and the, the setup of this is um we open with um a couple well actually we, we start with an initially within a sequence with the the male model of this couple uh going through an audition which kind of sets a little bit of a, a, a tone early on but essentially our window into the story is uh this male model carl and his partner yaya also a model but a much more successful and uh because she's a woman much better paid model than carl and she has a side gig as an influencer and they're invited onto this luxury cruise where basically it's them um but apart from that it's the ultra rich uh, you know so there's a Russian fertilizer magnate and a British arms dealer and, you know, various other sort of like ridiculous caricatures on there. Um, and basically, I'm going to try not to give too much away because there's a couple of like major pivots in the storyline here um, as we go through. But basically, it uses this setup to 
kind of satirize the relationship between the rich between themselves, uh, the rich and the sort of pretend rich, uh, like Yaya as a sort of social media influencers kind of purporting herself to be, and the sort of white collar crew, you know, like the front of house who are, you know, very rah, 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 and, you know, do anything to get say, and they're very chipper and, you know, well turned out. And then the, the crew below decks who are, you know, doing the cleaning and the maintenance of the ship and are generally, and, you know, and there's there's very obvious racial dynamics, um, you know, um, between these different strategies. The um, crew in the under decks is mostly Filipino, for instance. Um, you know, so th- th- there's a lot of layers going on here. And basically this is then a set up for him to poke fun at various hypocrisies, uh, grotesque elements, and I'm interested to see what the pair of you think about it because it, it goes a lot of places, right? As I say, and we'll try to kind of like talk around it a little bit, but there's a couple of major switches in the narrative, and one which is kind of based around um, the, the crew's not going according to plan, shall we say, and the fact that the captain is played by Woody Harrelson is basically a drunk socialist and he gets into debates with the drunk Russian capitalist and various things like that and then there's another one later on where kind of the hierarchy of the situation gets upended a little bit so it's kind of looking at all of these different dynamics and relationships and it's, it, it does that quite early on as well in that it, it has this argument about paying the bill in the first scene between these this couple um, you know, so it kind of wants to get into power dynamic in that initial segment, power dynamics, gender dynamics, um, expectations, and then it probably tries to do that later on, but from more of a class societal perspective. How successfully does that? I don't know. We can get into that. But uh, what did you what did you two think of it? I I liked it. Um, I I really I really liked the square. Um, so I I was looking forward to this film, and um, this was. I don't. I can't remember how long the square was, but I mean, I I found the square really fun because, sort of poking fun at the art world and 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 like and it's, and in this like very absurdist way, but like also like the filmmaking and whatnot was really really good. And I felt like this kind of felt on the same along the same lines, but you know, just different worlds and um, and some moments were were just like absolutely like off the off the charts like kind of grotesque and hilarious and um and just like you know in, in a way that's actually quite beautiful to like it was really well shot like the this very very grotesque mm. moment of you know panic where everyone had to or, or physical things happen to people um I yeah though overall I, it was a really long film and it had these different kind of segments and parts and I think I read that somewhere that by the time you're at the end of the film you feel like you're in a complete like you almost feel like you're in a separate sort of story but it's the same people and so I think it worked really well you know in that way and I I I, I enjoyed it and I would watch it again to get more out of it probably as well I too enjoyed the square from the perspective of someone who's worked in art galleries that was a very cathartic experience yeah. watching that film for me. And yeah, uh, same with Force Majeure. I loved it. Um, seen some of his earlier things as well. 
um, the titles of which I will not mention as they are not uh, remotely PC. Um, so a bad move, Ostland, on that one. But anyway, um, I thought this was really cathartic, <laughs> cathartic film, given where I'm at financially, <laughs> thanks to the government. <laughs> so um, yeah, but it's, it's really acerbic and quite absurd and it's really over. It's just so, it's really on the nose, just a satire about class, wealth, labour, and the mega rich getting their comeuppance, which is a bit fun, isn't it? Um, I know it's it's quite a love hate film. I've read I've read around uh, a lot of reviews of people loving it, and hating it. So I, I know that Peter Bradshaw hates Force Majeure and the Square and this, and he called this um, this film a heavy-handed Euro satire, <laughs> which which I don't know what, I don't know what he's going for there, but I think that's a bit bullshit because it's really not uh, a limited appeal film in terms of style tone or anything like that and I don't really I don't really see how that works but he also said it uses a howitzer to shoot drugged fish in a barrel I think, I, so that's yeah I, I the poor defenseless I, I, mega rich of the globe are just yeah I I see I, I I see his point in terms of like the targets yeah. right they're not they're not difficult targets but yeah. I think I think that so one of the things that tends to annoy me about films, I've said this on the show before I've said it about specific films when they try to do it is I get very annoyed when films present themselves to be much cleverer than they actually are right and i think a lot of reactions to this film are having that right they think it's trying to be clever and they're seeing it as very easy targets that you're firing a you know uh howitzer at and I, I i take that point but i think it's a <laughs> i think it's making the fatal flaw that one might of a kind of like film in multiple languages directed by a two-time Palm d'Or winner that premiered at Cannes, where like they're expecting it to want to be clever. I don't think this film is... I, I don't think this film is trying to make a sort of intricate, nuanced no. point, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, and like, I think, I think when you reach the third scene of a rich person sliding around in their underwear on a bathroom floor covering shit and piss and puke. Loved it. Maybe you should have picked up on that, right? It's <laughs> not a film that's going for subtle nuanced points. Now, does that make it a good film? No, not necessarily. Does it make it a fun film? Yes, I think so. Um, and I think the, the cast uh, roll with this really pretty well. I think it's quite fun. I mean, basically, it, it, it's almost kind of like a farcical um you know, Parasite on the High Seas meets, you know, at some point, like some sort of like, you know, modern class-based Lord of the Flies type thing. It's it, yeah. it, it, it it's a fun film and I do I did find it interesting. Am I, you know, do I think many film studies undergraduate uh, theses are going to be written about the, the class politics in this? No, <laughs> I don't. Um, but I don't think, I, I don't think the film was, I, I don't think the film is looking, is looking to do that. And I think there's something quite funny about this, you know, to take one scene from the film, this fruitless conversation happening between, as the uh, Russian character notes, an American, an American communist, as he puts it. Although you know, there's discussion about precisely what Woody Harrelson's character is politically, an American communist versus a Russian capitalist, and they're having this completely pointless, essentially, debate <laughs> where they're googling different ironic quotes from their political idols. Um, you know, while this boat rocks back and forth, and there's like you know bodily fluids sloshing around it, and people are throwing like it's, so it's like is it subtle? Is it clever? No, not particularly. It is funny. It is funny, and I think it makes enough of a point that you can, 
you can get on board with it and have a chuckle at it. Um, It's one of those films where, like, and I don't like doing this with films, but I think a lot of people need to be told, it's not that deep, okay? It's really not that deep. Um, You know, and I think, I I hadn't read Peter Bradshaw's review, but, like, the quotes that you read out there, Claire, that would be my reaction to it. I mean, my reaction would be, why are you expecting this to be a delicate intricate satire i i really don't think that's what the film is going for if it was going for that if it was going for that then it's failed spectacularly but i genuinely i genuinely don't think it is i think there's there's too many absurd farcical setups and payoffs to Mm. for that to be what the film is going for and that's not to say it doesn't have its little intricacies around kind of like how it flips some of the relationships on its head later in the film but again it's all done in service to it being um amusing mm. right and i and i don't mean that in a kind of sort of like a belly laugh type way it's more like a, it's more of a you know it's more sardonic than anything else mm. right it, it's the tone that i think it's going for and i think it does it very well on top of that there's a lot of visual stuff which i really like right there's a dinner which takes place during a storm and the way that everybody's kind of like walking at an angle <laughs> to keep themselves upright and you know and the, the weird it's it's almost like they're, they're doing the whole dutch angle thing that they're doing it with the people rather than the actual frame of the, like it it is very mm. well done i liked it i i don't think it's a subtle film but i don't think it's wanting to be a subtle film i think criticizing a film which is as farcical and brutal as this in its um, attempt to paint the the uber-rich as just vacuous, hypocritical idiots um, should be criticised for not being subtle. Why should it be subtle? You know, and that's not what it's going for. So I I, I got a lot out of this. I take some of those complaints um, and I I see where they're coming from. I just, I I don't think it's the primary correct reading of the film. If I'm being honest, I mean, Bradshaw also said he didn't find it funny at all. So I mean, he's on a different page, completely reading, watching this film. But I mean, I I I thought it was a pretty pretty messed up and darkly hilarious. But I I was two glasses of wine deep and I was losing, (laughs) so I don't know. But I did I did find it very funny. I I would say I would describe it as like because it is all over the place in in a good way. I think I'd describe it as the Poseidon Adventure meets. Kafka's America and a Monty Python sketch. Amazing, that's good. <laughs> or like, yeah, but, but that's a, that's a good point, right? There's a lot of yeah, it, like around the dinner on. scene, around the dinner scene, there is a, like you could actually point to a lot of like Monty Python esque stuff in that, and I don't think totally. like you know like like Python for all of its influence, like it was it was never a subtle endeavor, like when they right. would they would do things, like it was clever, but it wasn't subtle and nuanced right um you know and that, that you know and i'm not trying to claim that this film is as is good as kind of like you know stuff that um the flying circus or any of their films did around kind of like you know satirizing that sort of thing but the point is i think there's a lot of misaligned expectations for the approach this film is actually trying to take and i think a lot of people are criticizing it on you, you know i mean certainly based upon the bradshaw quotes and some other stuff i've seen floating around social media i personally think people are criticizing the film for things it's not trying to do yeah but. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, they are taking it too seriously. The, the the Monty Python element is something that people can be doing to pick up on, especially in the banquet scene. I mean, it's just if you haven't gotten it by then, <laughs> yeah. Also, also, I'd say it's kind of like a caution. It's a cautionary tale as well. It's like Brothers Grimm, or like an Aesop Aesop fable made about like a cautionary tale about being filthy rich and not really realizing it and still being completely tone deaf. 
Um, yeah, as, as somebody who's worked as a lowly service wench for incredibly wealthy people, this is like so, so accurate a representation <laughs> of the surreal and utterly tone deaf, blissfully unaware and detached way that they see the world and the people below them, always below them, but there's, you know, pretending that they're contemporaries and they can, it's just, yeah, I mean, you'll have people telling you that night is day and you have to smile and apologize for being so utterly stupid as to think otherwise. And it yeah. really, like, he is, Osterland is so good at, turning the, those horrible social situations and dynamics into com into comedy which I really love I just yeah I, I think the way he handles humor is, is brilliant personally but I suppose it comes down to taste but um if you like this, this it's the same kind of humor as the square essentially um it's, it's just yeah it's very on the nose I mean like with the with the old gammony British couple representing the arms trade it is kind of <laughs> <laughs> that's our place on the world stage and represented by a, an old but, but but the thing is like the the pay that like the, like the, the setup of those characters and i can say this without giving anything away of it right as far as i'm concerned the payoff of like their setup and kind of like where they go in the film right it's worth it it's funny it's so worth so, it. like it, it's it's, it's so it, is it smart and subtle no, it's not. But I don't care. Like it, 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 it's it sets out to do what it wants, which is to set up these ridiculous caricatures and give them some sort of comeuppance, which is ironic and farcical. And it does that. And it does it. It does it, combining with the the way in which it's kind of presented and the, the actual technical choice around how it's shot, and the performances of the cast. It's good. They come together very nicely to achieve that. I've also seen some people, um, some detractors saying that they don't like it because it's like a lefty diatribe, but it's not, yeah, it's, it's not doing a good enough job. It's not, it's not interrogating its, its political stance well enough, but that's, it's just, it's just so ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's lambasting everyone really like, and, and you get that through the character of Woody Howson, who's the captain, because he exactly, says like, yes. he's saying, he's trying to, he's announcing over the tannoy, he's extremely drunk. Um, trying to say that he's a, he's a, a shit socialist but he's saying i'm a shit show i mean i'm, I'm a shit <laughs> i'm a shit socialist and it's just like it, it, no one is spared this whatsoever like yeah, but, but that's it's, the thing i i don't think that's accurate either and it doesn't interrogate it's i mean you know mm -hmm. and as i said i don't think it's it's not trying to be kind of like this you know mm -hmm. deep nuanced um thesis on class relations and you know the economics of the world but i think it does do that like i think the fact that i think the fact that you have these two characters interrogating each other in this unbelievably superficial way about their political beliefs by as i say like googling quotes on their phone i think the fact that they're doing that whilst everybody around them that supposedly depends on them in the case of woody Harrison, is sliding around in their own bodily fluids in their underwear it's right perfect. that 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 is a commentary on it is it, is it is it is it a sort of subtle quote unquote intelligent one no it's not but it is that is interrogating it while the self-professed socialist is empty emptily vacuously debating with this guy everything around him is falling apart right like that to me seems like quite a profound point as and they're getting I drunk together say. and and yeah so the, the russian the russian capitalists and the socialists are getting drunk together so it's yeah exactly like that, that to circle, me like it's, intellectual it's, it's not jerking. subtle it's not subtle. Exactly. It's not interrogating exactly. it. It's just like Precisely. you know. It's yeah. Yeah, and then so I don't. I don't want to give too much away, but I guess I have seen it. I have seen the on the any blurb that you you see. It does mention that there is the the characters are placed into a situation, a stressful, tense situation of survival. Um, 
which serves the purpose of creating a, a microcosm of the outside world and also like a kind of a sandbox to kind of recreate and reshape their roles in society and their opinions on society and their ideologies. Um, so we have the Russian, the Russian capitalist who was just minutes earlier debating with with Harrelson, um, googling quotes to, to to back up his uh, his Reaganite um, <laughs> leanings. He suddenly uh, quotes with, without mentioning Marx, to each his ability, to each his need, to try and justify he's getting more food, basically quoting Marx mm -hmm. just on the back, just like so, just yeah, it's just it, it does it does make some really acerbic, um, scathing comments about how we're all just really self-serving creatures who will employ whatever we need to get what we want at the time and just sort of get by <laughs> which is it, but it does it's not as grim as I'm making it sound it is amusing <laughs> I enjoyed it very much and they even go into gender role reversal in terms of labor <laughs> and sexual exploitation which is really fun like just chuck that in as well there's some really great comments made I think it's great I'm, I'm quite keen to watch it again with some other people and uh, have a good laugh. Yeah, and I'd like to see it in the cinema too. I think it'll be really fun to watch um, in yeah in a bigger space and 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 take it all in. So I'm gonna go see it again yeah, and um, support my the the cameo if that's where it is. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we uh, it comes out on the 28th, and that's Triangle of Sadness. So the next film festival that we are encouraging you to go to um, is the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. And if you have been a longtime listener or a colleague of Cinetopia, then you know that Cinetopia kind of came out of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. We worked really closely with um, Paul Bruce on that, on, on starting this. And uh, they're a good, good friends of, of, of our organization. They also, that also means that on the first evening of um, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, we're gonna be running our normal uh, monthly networking event. Um, and that's on the 28th. So it'll be Friday the 28th at Summer Hall in our regular spot at Summer Hall um, at the Royal Dick Bar. Uh, but it's also the launch of the film festival. And if you don't know anything about the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, they get a huge amount of um, films that come in from all over the all over the world. And um, they have a really great program um, across uh, from the 28th of October to the 13th of November. And it's full of films all over, from all over the world, including Scottish films, um, and often very incredible mixture of, of opportunities, lots of animation, um, lots of dramas, definitely lots of comedies. I got a little bit of sneak peek because I uh, did their uh, trailer. So I saw some the caliber of films that are playing at the at the film festival and they are doing they're doing most of them at summer hall and i believe they had to move their venues to um uh, another the voodoo rooms so those that were supposed to be at um that are normally at the film house have now moved there um so but lots of lots of them at the summer hall 
and hence on the 28th of October. Uh, you should join us for networking and um, and the film festival. So please check it out, edinburghshortfilmfestival.com. So the next film festival we're going to highlight is the Shortcom Film Festival. And that is also a film festival that we've worked with a lot over the years. Um, a good friend of ours runs the film festival. And it's, as you can imagine, it's all short comedy, comedy shorts. So uh, it's at, this one's happening in Glasgow and Edinburgh and London, but you can catch it in London at, I mean, I'm sorry, in Edinburgh at Summer Hall on uh, the 7th of November and at ECA on the 8th of November, there'll be an animation um, strand and on the 9th of November at the Everyman Cinema as well. We'll also be at the Banchley Labyrinth on the 10th. So we're talking 7th to the 10th of November, another incredible film festival that you should check out and support and um, more information on their website at shortcom.org. All right, so that wraps up our October uh, show. Um, as mentioned before, uh, yeah, if you if you are keen to get involved, say um, on the film house situation, Edinburgh International Film Festival, please sign the petition. Also, please join us for the um, I Can Where I'm Going, I Know Where I'm Going archive project that Cinetopia is running from the 28th to the 31st at the French Institute. It is a 12 minute um, installation around folk song and archive film from all around Scotland. It's an, it's an incredible collaboration between Diwali and uh, visual artist Yulia Kovanova and uh, Kieran Gosney, who did the editing and a projectionist Metcha Hunneman, and um, it produced it. But it's really it's free and it's going to be really wonderful. And I hope you guys go and come and join that um, with us. And um, from that, uh, Jim and Clara, how how are you planning to spend your Octobers? Or November, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, filmically, mm, yes. Film. <laughs> well, since it's October, I'm going to try and get myself along to the cameo and watch some good old-fashioned horror films. Um, they've got quite a lot on. I'm not sure what I'm going to go see yet, but I know they've got Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, Poltergeist. They got Evil Dead. They got Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they've also got Bram Stoker's Dracula, which, if you haven't seen it, is really really terrible and really funny, uh, so highly recommend. With regards to other filmic offerings, I would say I'm quite looking forward to the Banshees of Inshirin. Um, I'm going to try and get along to a screening at the cameo that has uh, the Martin McDonough Q&A. Uh, I'm also looking forward to a documentary called All That Breathes, which is about two brothers who nurture and heal um, birds of prey in Delhi. Um, it's really cinematic and it has really great reviews and I was really taken in by the trailer so I'm pretty keen to go see that. So I think on the film front I I, I have some some time in the coming weekend to try and see a few things so one film that I want to check out is the Banshees of, I don't even know how you're meant to pronounce it, Inishirin, Inishirin uh, which is Martin McDonough's new film. Very keen to check that out. Um, Maybe try and get along to some Edinburgh Short Film Festival, soften some of the film festivals that were mentioned 
earlier because I think you know with the discussion we had at the top of the show, it's uh, more important ever to support these things where where you can, right? Um, and I think I, I should be able to do that. But beyond that, I will probably be looking along with my wife to baby train, uh, sorry, sleep train my eight month old baby so that I might actually be able to sleep for longer than three hours at a time sometime. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometime this decade um so that that will probably be quite an endeavor so we'll see how that goes and then i'll take films from there i think um but yeah no and you know just keep an eye out for stuff that's coming out because ironically a lot of the stuff they're shown at edinburgh film festival is uh probably not going to start coming to cinemas like whatever ones we have left by the time this airs or by the time we get to the next show um you know in london film festival's been going on new york film, like, there's been quite a few big ones about it, and there'll be some some big releases uh, coming in the coming weeks which i would like to check out but so really a combination of that and some of the smaller film festivals we've spoken about yeah and i'd also like to make a note to everyone to if you're in edinburgh and you want to come to Cinetopia's running and networking alongside the edinburgh short film festival on the 28th of october so that's our uh collaboration between edinburgh short film festival and Cinetopia for networking night so that save that date and uh see you there maybe and see you next month Thank you.